Recorded live. From Coolidge, Arizona, May 15, 2014, Revelation, Chapter 9. We're going to skim uh, some of the verses that we've dealt with last week. But before we do that, I want to make make you aware that I have some printed out material of history that's covering this period of time, uh, a historical review, A.D. 64 to 66, um, Elizar blew the horn, A.D. 66, war chronology, part one putting a stop to sacrifices in 66, um, <clears throat> the humiliation by the zealots in 66, uh, the war begins in 66, this is all on war chronology, history taking place in the time that we're uh, looking at, Joseph versus uh, Vespasian, A.D. 67, uh, Vespasian gains control, 67 to 69, zealot factions from A.D. 68 to 70. Uh, Those are here, and uh, these are my copies, but anyone is welcome to take any of them, scan them, you know, and and, uh, if if there's any history. We'll be pulling from some of this material. Uh, It's a lot of quotations from Josephus and other historians, and I've borrowed them from Ed Stevens. And and uh, printed them off of his web, um, what do they call it, the podcast. podcast. <clears throat> and every week I try to pick up on those. You may not agree with all that he says, but he, he is doing a pretty good job of covering the history. And um, anyone is welcome to take any or all of them, but I do want them back. I I will need them, um, or we can just make copies of them and give them to you. Now, they're not copyrighted, so we can do what we want to. I don't don't think they're copyrighted. You'll need them for the afterlife, right? Hmm? You'll need them for the afterlife. I'll need them for my afterlife. So in verse 1, and we've already discussed these verses, but to bring them back into focus, um, the fifth angel sounded. He saw a star, and uh, it came out of a, a high position, political, spiritual. At this point, we don't know. But it uh, and the star is a hymn in that verse. We we need to remember this and keep that into focus. And he uh, and this star had fallen into the earth. So in, into the earth of uh, the earth that we've been talking about, which is what the Jewish the Jewish earth. And so that's how it went into the earth, because it was into that, um, um, what, what, what should we call it? What's the right word there? 
anyway, anyway in, into that uh, uh, situation of uh, the Jewish um, heaven and earth. This is a part of, of the heaven and earth being demolished so that the new one in Revelations 21 and 22 can emerge and be victorious. <clears throat> and this star uh, was, uh, represents a person, a ruler, from a high, high position, gets and falls into the earth and is given the key or the authority of the what? Remember the, how he worded that last week? Not the bottomless pit, but the, the shaft of the abyss. Uh, there's the there's no word in here that you can derive bottomless from uh, directly anyhow. So he was given the key of the shaft to the abyss, and when he opened the pit in verse two, <clears throat> smoke came out, but the smoke was um, uh, con- contained a lot of what in verse three. Locust, right? All right. The smoke was a carrier of the locust. It came out of the pit. Smoke like of a great belching furnace. So much so that it darkened the air, the sun. With the smoke of the shaft. Then verse 3. Out of the smoke came locust, and upon the earth, they came upon the earth, and power, and this particular word is power that has been given, delegated, and it was given to them as the scorpions. It it was not inherent authority, by the way. It even says it was given to them. So that that uh, delegated authority uh, was given, and he had that power in the same way that the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, there's a couple things I want to go into tonight here uh, from the context. Now, we're, we're going to deal down the way. We'll deal with some of the uh, situ- some of the names that may be used here of what was going on in the history. But now we're focusing on the content of the scripture itself. We want to become very familiar with the symbols and what they represent, how they're used, and then we'll use resources like Ed Stevens uh, to try to pinpoint who or what this may have been. That's that's my plan, if I live. <clears throat> and if I don't, why? I guess it will remain unresolved <laughs> until the next David comes along. Anyway, <clears throat> let's go and let's let's focus in first of all the the locust. Uh, the locusts were a method of God's judgment upon a people, whether his people or enemies of his people. 
Let's go back to Exodus and just get some background here. I'm taking time for some of these Old Testament passages because I have found that a lot of our folks are not familiar with the Old Testament. I heard a professor at San Jose Bible College, I won't give any names, he's now deceased, but he said, I just don't see much relevance in the Old Testament. Well, now, what you say when you say something like that, I, I, don't, think, I don't think that's good, a good statement. I don't think that's right. Because how, how do you ever get a grasp of the New Testament which is the fulfillment of what's in the Old Testament, how, how, do, you, how do you reconcile that? And this guy was a real scholar. He's, he's written. We have some of his works uh, maybe over here. I don't know for sure. But um, I just don't. I, his statement was very, very close to this, is that I, I just don't see much relevance in the Old Testament for where we are today. <clears throat> and I think that's one reason why our folks are not well informed. And so they get they can be twisted and turned and I think the Old Testament is a real stabilizer to one's belief and how they look at the Old Testament. We've been studying on Tuesday night how God teaches and God teaches through uh propositional words, words that form ideas. Uh, that's one way, and then he he teaches through the lives of people by example, and he calls to mind, look at Abraham and look at Hebrews uh, chapter 11, those great examples of faith. He uses people um, as examples to us, and uh, 1 Corinthians 10, I think it is, uh, he says these a lot of these events were written down for our admonition written for our admonition. How would you even know how to prepare the Lord's Supper if it wasn't for the Old Testament? You wouldn't know that it wasn't to have any leaven in it, in the bread or or uh, intoxication in the wine. You wouldn't know that otherwise. And then the third thing is the the types. A lot of a lot of words in the Bible uh, are translated from the word typos from a lot of different ways in in a lot of different ways, but it all means um, an an impression made by the original, <clears throat> like a die. And uh, the types in the there are types in the Old Testament that are referred to as types in the New Testament. Then there are those that are simply um, mentioned as being examples without being a type. Some then are simply types because of how they use, like Jesus is our Passover. It doesn't say anything about type there, but it uses an Old Testament word to describe some aspect of Jesus. But back in, back to types, uh, we're going through and looking at some of the highlights of the types the type of the tabernacle as a shadow of the substance. What was the substance? 
and the, the shadow and the substance shall ought to be in agreement. And the same thing with the uh, the flood was a type of uh, was a type of baptism in First Peter, and so we know that he's talking about water there because if you change the water for baptism there, then you're going to have to change the water at the flood to something else because it's in the same verse. So those are ways that God teaches. Sin separates man from God. Revelation restores man to God. That's why we have to keep our capability from the Garden of Eden. We cannot lose it because God's method of restoring, of restoration, is to appeal to man's mind and to his reasoning. So that did not go away. It was not destroyed. It was not ruined. Right out of the pit. Uh, why God began communicating with Adam and Eve right away. They understood what he was talking about. And so those are ways that God teaches. And so in the Old Testament here, for where we are right now in in Exodus chapter 10, we're finding that he's given us ideas that we can make application to in our study in Revelation. Let's look at Locusts, chapter 10. And verse 4. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. Now he's talking to Pharaoh. And you notice in verse 1, I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Now remember that God hardened his heart, but also remember that prior to this, Pharaoh, it says in earlier chapters, he hardened his own heart and and set God up for doing this um, more, uh, more, uh, more stringently. So if you refuse to let my people go, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. Verse 5, they shall cover the surface of the land. So what are these locusts going to be used for? It's going to be used as God's judgment against Pharaoh and against his people. So keep that in mind. Let's keep going. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. And now really plug into what we're saying because this is going to get get us into revelation here soon they will also eat the rest of what oh uh, they shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land that's that's thick i mean that's a lot of locust they will also eat the rest of what has escaped what is left to you from the hail and they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field so what are these locusts feeding on? Everything. Every green thing that's left. Left from what? The hail. Uh, 
Then your houses will be filled in verse 6, and the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians. Can you imagine walking into a room full of locusts? Which neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from this day that they came upon the earth until this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Now that's a lot of locusts. And it's like this room being just jam-packed full of locusts, just crawling and creeping and, and uh, shimmering itself around. Uh, you can hardly move. Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. That they may serve the Lord their God. Do not... Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? Because isn't that issue? They, were, they had asked for a three-day furlough. Isn't that right? Was it a three-day furlough that the uh, Israelites had asked for to go out and worship? And they, they had refused to grant them that privilege? And now this is God's judgment on them for not allowing his people to do what was right for them to do. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, who are the ones that are going. Moses said, We shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. See, that's that furlough. And then he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, take heed, for evil is on your mind. You've got to trick up your sleeve. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat what? Every plant of the land. Is that necessary for survival? Even all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord directed an east wind on the land all that day and all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locust. God using natural resources to bring about uh, his desired supernatural event. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And I guess we read that one, verse 14. The locust came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in all the territory of Egypt. And they were very numerous. There had never been so many locusts, nor would would there be so again. For they covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened. Did that happen in, in Revelation, where we are? And they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then, of course, verse 16, which has nothing to do with where we're going here, but we've got to read it. Then Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses. 
you know, when the chips are really down, now he calls for Moses and Aaron, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Forgive me only this once. Remove this death from me, and I'll just become like a little child and do whatsoever you would like. And, of course, we, he crawfished on that too, didn't he? Okay, now, <clears throat> that gives us an idea. First of all, that God used locusts as a judgment against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians in favor of his people. So it is used as a judgment. Now here in Revelation chapter 9, look at the difference in verse 4. The locust in Exodus ate what? Everything green. Now notice here that these locusts were spoken to. Obviously, the locusts weren't locusts. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. So what's the difference between Revelation 9.4 and Exodus chapter 10 regarding the locusts? Every, yeah, just the opposite, but not in the fact that they were used here for judgment. Yeah, and what they did, they were. And and what they did, that's right. What they did was the very opposite. Because see, that's what that's the very thing that a real locust really does. That's what they hurt is everything green. They were used in the natural, physical way in Exodus 10. But here it is obvious that he's not talking about literal locusts. That, yeah, that puts one more mark in there. That is right in, in Exodus, it's right from a historical standpoint. Think it's, it's literal. That's right. This is, uh, you know, and this is prophetic, prophetic and, and prophetic. Prophetic and, and symbolic. So good good observation. Folks, if we can keep that in mind all the way here. Let's go back to Joel. Joel, Amos, Obadiah. You know all those great books back there. <clears throat> now look at let's look at verses uh, chapter one of Joel. Now Joel prophesied to Judah, not to Israel. <clears throat> After the northern um, 
after Israel had been carried away by the Assyrians in about 722 B.C., we have Joel getting plugged in, and he, he is talking, his prophecy is pertaining to Judah and to Jerusalem alone. Now I'm trying to tie where we've been together with where we want to go here. <clears throat> so keep that in mind. So here we have Joel using the symbol of the locust. And it's representing a nation against Israel. Against Jerusalem, more specifically. Um, not against Israel as, as it was back here, but against uh, Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem. <clears throat> so when we move to Revelation in chapter 9, the symbols then, uh, we're suggesting, must represent a nation against Judah and Jerusalem as it did in its root use. And that's what we're trying to discover. So in Joel chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came, uh, came to Joel, and he said, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. Now, generation here means race, right? You catch on real quick, Neil. Why, why do some then, when we get into portions of the New Testament where the word generation is used, we take it out of its general usage and, and add the word race to it, and yet we don't want to do it here? doesn't make sense, does it? No, this doesn't upset my thinking. It doesn't? No. Okay. But it does in... Mark 13 and Matthew 24. And, that's where I want it. Yeah, okay. You know, you're thinking right on. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Tell, uh, so, and, and their son's the next generation. You know, that's, that's just the, the next group of folks living at a certain time. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. So now look at the look at the descriptions of locusts here. The first one is a gnawing locust. Then you have the swarming locust. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. I think that about does it. And this was symbolized by Joel here. He's, he's pertaining his prophecy to Judah and Jerusalem only to them. And he's using the symbol of the locust to represent a nation that's coming against uh, Jerusalem and it is the same idea then in its root usage as we have in Revelation chapter 9. 
Any questions on that? Okay, let's go back to um, <clears throat> let's go back to our notes. So, I think we I, I think we can say that with the um, um, with the locust, we have a pretty pretty good idea now that uh, they represent something uh, that's coming against Judah and Jerusalem. And we're going to get more of a description. And in verse 5, they were not permitted to kill anyone. Oh, but but verse 4, the latter part of it. But I think we dealt with that last week. Only the men. Oh, there is one thing that they, uh, they could hurt. Who could they hurt in verse 4? Men who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. All right. Only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's the seal, the mark of distinction, something that separated them probably intellectually, mentally, thoughtfully from other people, from the norm. These who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In verse 5, and they... Now, the they now is referring back to the locust. Is there any doubt that the locusts are referring to symbolically people? And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment. For five months, And I would suggest that when we deal with time frames, that we think of it, first of all, as time elements, time frames, time context as being literal. That's the starting place. It is obvious in the context that locusts are referring to what? People. The star was referring to a man. A man. And the key was a symbol of authority. Those are very obvious. But it's pretty hard to put a time frame into anything symbolic. Pretty hard to do that because it's a very specific thing. How, how accurate was their ability to, to tell time and motion? Uh, Oh, um, they had perfected. Oh, you, you know, going to answer that question a little bit superficially first. Out here on the um, on the uh, the ruins, the Castagran ruins. Have you been through that? Oh, sure. Well, they they give they have in there where the light comes through, hits a spot, and they they have they developed a system of measuring seasons from that little spot in there which is characteristic of a lot of the Indian ruins, but that's worth going for for that one thing, to see that. I think the uh, e- even back here, uh, they had time, time frames, a little different than ours, but it's still very accurate, very accurate. Anybody want to add anything to that? I think some of the Americans really did. What was 
all civilizations really did. They had their yeah. astrologers, and they figured out. They, that's right. They they had a real good handle on. They made corrections every year for just some slight inaccuracies, but they did did it with the issue of where a certain star was at a certain time of year. Yeah, they made corrections for. Because the harvest, the planting and harvesting would get out of order. The planting, especially. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I get that. I just wasn't sure just how pinpoint accurate. I think they. I think they were. I think that it has been accurate from as far back as we have history. Very, very accurate. And each culture, though, had to develop times. Yeah, so it's just the Indian culture which I find very fascinating as to how they developed their astrological time frame. But they they were not permitted to kill anybody but to torment in verse 5. So they had they had delegated authority. They had limitations put on what they could do. I'm pausing because I, I had a... <clears throat> I've mentioned several times that e- even even though they could have done and killed anyone and everyone, they had restrictions put upon them and what caused me to pause there for a moment, I was just thinking about how God, as a sovereign being, he could manipulate all of us like a bunch of puppets. But he has, he has placed restraints upon the exercise of his sovereignty as well. See that? And he has made us sovereign, self-determinate as he is, but he has total and unlimited sovereignty and yet has chosen to limit the exercise. He restrains the exercise of his sovereignty. It doesn't have anything to do with our lesson, but I uh, once in a while things come and i got to get, get them out of my brain. <clears throat> okay. So and they were they were not permitted to kill anyone in verse five, but to torment for five months. And um, here here is a quotation from the Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume One, page five sixty, uh, paragraph C. If anybody wants to check up on it, <clears throat> the apostle refers here to persons and events of his own time. Oops. No, I got the wrong one. That isn't. Here, here's the one I wanted. <clears throat> if taken literally, and I, I made a note of this on in the in the notes down there, but it's it's small it's small and it's hard to read. But if taken literally, uh, it would it, it should apply to the five months from May to September when the zealots in the year of the siege of Jerusalem produced a most dreadful reign of terror. 
And here's the here's what I was wanting to quote. <clears throat> their their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. And if taken literally, this could apply to the weapons used by the zealots and others. Isidore describes the weapons used during this period. Historian. The scorpion, I quote now from our source, the scorpion is a poisoned arrow shot from a bow or other instrument which when it wounds a man deposits poison with which it is covered in the wound whence it has the name scorpion. Well, I don't know whether that's right or not. But I thought it was an interesting point that there really is, uh, they actually used a weapon called scorpion. Have you read anything to that? I've read that too. And they, they were... They were like, uh, well, you, you, you picture a, um, what do you call it? <laughs> Went right out of my head. But, yeah, I've seen pictures of them. And they can actually line these arrows up, and they shoot them from a machine much farther than a bow would ever go. Uh, and, and you're right, they were called scorpions. Yeah. If you look up on the web on a website Roman weapons, uh, sage machines or whatever, you find all of this stuff in there. Well, anytime you can add to anything, why well, don't hesitate doing it. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I just can't get into the internet, and I can't read enough of it anymore. It's too hurts my eyes too much, but. That's good. I like. I'm glad. I'm oh, crossbow. That's what I was trying to think of. If you think of a crossbow, okay, it was just a bigger crossbow. Okay. And of course, a crossbow is horizontal, mm-hmm. and a bow is vertical. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, used in its use. So, you know, that's an interesting point. Whether or not that is applicable here, I, th- I think that's a toss-up. But it, it is an idea. Um, that may be um, useful or helpful here. <clears throat> so the torment of, of a scorpion when, when, when it stings a man. So he could very, very possibly be referring to something that they would know and that they could zero in on from their background of, you know, of the experiences of life. So in verse 6, uh, in those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. This is when death looks good. And the word that's used here to um, to seek is a word that means to have a strong lust or intense desire for. That the thing above all other things would just be to die.
But where'd you get there? Did you, are you are you looking up the word? Uh, um, there you go. Shall seek. Well, that doesn't tell us a whole lot. Uh, they do have in the King James Desire, um, but actually the the word uh, all put together there really has uh, the idea of an intense desire. Very intense <clears throat> to die. Seek death, men chasing death, but they can't catch it. When I go out walking, I think about death being right behind me, and I'm trying to outflee it. <laughs> but you see, it's just the opposite here. Here, you're looking for it, but you can't catch it. Josephus writes this. Josephus, that, by the way, I took that from Josephus' War of the Jews, uh, Book 4. He's describing, yeah. Oh, you, you're reading my notes, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. He's describing the atmosphere at one point. That's right. Which is a confirmation, of course, of the Scripture. It sure is. So he's seeking, uh, they're, they're seeking death with a passion, uh, will not find it. They just can't catch up with it. Most of us are trying to get away from it, but these people were being tormented to the place that they longed to die, and yet they couldn't catch up with it. And that's described by in Josephus' War on the Jews, book 4. So in verse 7, and we, I want to finish this now, uh, the, um, the appearance of the locust, So how these how these guys looked they were horses? No. They were what? Like horses. And like horses. Now folks, that's a pretty big locust. <laughs> yeah. You can see that we're getting an extreme picture here because this first woe he wants us to really get a handle, I think, I think anyway, really get a handle on what's going on here. Not so much who may be involved, but that's going to be, I think, valid. But specifically, what is the text? It is conveying a scene, a vision. It's just unbelievable. And so the appearance of these locusts that are people were like horses prepared for battle. And on their heads appeared to be, so appeared, it looked like something like a crown and even like gold. Not gold, but like gold. Crowns of gold something like crowns of gold on their head. Like horses, like crowns of gold, 
faces like man. And their faces were like the faces of men. However you look at verse 7, I think you've got to agree that it's a real spooky picture. (laughs) No. No, not at all. Now we go over to the next. Uh, we, you don't have notes, but we're we're not going to go very far because we're almost out of time. If I can find mine here, I don't know what you did with it. Should have been right, right next here. Uh, the next lesson. Hmm. I don't know what I'm going to have to do here. Alex, well, let's just let's just read it from the text up there. <clears throat> I'd like to finish this woe, just the reading of it. But I got, so they have faces like men, and they had hair like the hair of women. And they had teeth. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. Isn't that some description of a locust? He's talking about something here for the purpose of impressing upon us something about what's happening. These people, this description that came out of the out of the abyss. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots, of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpion and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. So that's a repeat, isn't it? And they have this king over them, so he's been talking about the same thing and, and just remunerating some things here. Now, is, is that the star? Would that be the star, the, the king? And they have this king over them, the angel of the abyss. Um, what do you guys think? Possibly. But it could have been... What was in the abyss? Who was in the abyss? And his name is Hebrew. In Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. This has been bad. But things are going to get a whole lot worse. And so next week where I want to go back and start with verse 9... <clears throat> and I want to I want to reemphasize that we uh, there are root uses of words or symbols, and we should follow that pattern in our own interpretation. And I want to illustrate that again with Joel one and two next week, and. Uh, make it some applications to verses 9, 10, and 11. <clears throat> okay?
Any questions? What's your impression of this chapter? So far, the first seven, eight verses. Very descriptive. Not generalization in any way. Very, yeah, and it's very intense in its description. Very intense. And uh, the, so the, the locusts represent what now? They came from where? The abyss. And who had, and who had opened? The star. The star had opened the abyss. And um, he had been given authority to open the abyss by whom? Do we know? An angel allowed, but, but it would be from God, of course. It could be. Could be. <laughs> yeah. um, and very likely that's the case, but I mean, it doesn't tell us specifically. It just says that he was given authority. It doesn't tell us by whom. And, uh, and then, of course, then we end up the first woe with uh, with what angel coming to the surface now? Apollyon. Abaddon and Apollyon. Well, same person, just Hebrew and Greek. Okay, the angel, the angel, and they have his king over them. They have a ruler over them, and that's the angel of the abyss the messenger of the abyss, and here is what his name is. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that uh, next uh, Thursday night. Okay, don't have time to go into that night and, and do it justice. Any questions? <clears throat> okay. Father, we're thankful for a good evening, good time together. It is pleasant to be with one another in a wonderful setting of the scripture to explore these rich, rich uh, symbols and prophecy of that time which has now been fulfilled. But Lord, may we see uh, more about your nature and the things that you care about and the things that you make judgments on that we may judge with you and never against you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.